0: Hello and welcome to Seeing Them Given, the show that takes a deep look at the laws of the game and the referees who enforce them. This week, what should you do when a player is sent off and refuses to leave the pitch? Are we seeing referees play advantage much more often this season? Does the offside law need a tweak after the weekend's events at Vicarage Road? And it's rare, but when you get teammates fighting among themselves... How should you handle it? I'm Mike McCarthy, a football journalist with very little experience of football refereeing. With me, a man with much more. Keith Hackett, the former FIFA referee and ex head of the PGMOL. Keith, great to have you with us. I just wanted to start by saying thanks to everyone who got in touch following last week's show on the referee shortage in in grassroots football. Mm. I just wanted to read some of these comments to you, Keith, actually. Um, Kerry getting in touch. uh, and says, in Northern Virginia, uh, teenagers rarely last one season. Too much stress and not nearly enough pay. The only refs I see year on year are like me, the grumpy old men and women with thick skins who know how to handle the obstreperous parents. Uh, Good to know it's, well sort of good to know it's not just an English problem that we're dealing with here Uh, another message we got says uh, I've recently hung up my whistle very sorry to hear that also had offers of extra money to cover the game and again that's disappointing and this message uh, i worry may be all too common a problem as well It came from gaz keith i looked at doing the course just to help out a few junior local teams and all the courses run at the same time on the same days wednesday and saturday says gaz which i couldn't make work so i didn't take it any further that to me appears the sort of thing you'd hope would be an easy fix
1: absolutely i mean uh, all that uh individual should do is to make contact with his local county fa and maybe he's got a chance of doing it online or if he hasn't then the county fa should organize that they're in a position to do that i I can't think uh, of why with modern technology and how consistent and good it is that they can't run these courses uh, in that way
0: Fair enough. Now, normally we start in the Premier League on this show and we will sort of, uh, to be a little bit more precise though, we're going to start in the East Cornwall Premier League. Um, This is a match that was highlighted to you on on Twitter, Keith, a match between St. Minver and St. Clear, abandoned after St. Clear's player manager refused to leave the field of play, having been sent off. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Keith, has this ever happened to you? And does the referee have any other choice but to abandon the game when something like this happens?
1: I'm sure that that referee's gone through a great deal of process uh, in his own mind. Uh, You know, when we, we look at referees at various competitions at grassroots level, this is slightly above grassroots in fairness. You hope that they've got the experience to be able to deal with things fully. In this situation, you know, you've got to ask... Why didn't the player leave the field of play? And he's put the pressure on the referee and left the referee with no option. Now, I think, again, I reiterate that referees do this job for enjoyment. Yeah, they get a bit of pin money as, I think, not huge amounts of money anyway. They do it. Some are ambitious and want to get to the top. But if you've got 27,000 referees in in England alone and only, you know, 20 of them get to the very highest level. You can see the competitive nature of that. So they're there in the main to go out on a Saturday. They've looked forward to the game to enjoy it. And sadly, you know, this player, player manager, set a very poor example. Now, when I went out and refereed, I made mistakes. Uh, I watch players from close range hit the ball over the bar, miss an open net, challenge and get a yellow card. The truth is that we're all guilty of error. And there's got to be a realism here. We're not, you know, we're not machines. We don't have VAR. Sometimes we have difficult laws to apply. We've got to judge. So this referee's made a judgment and somebody disagrees with it. Count to ten. He didn't. Let it go. He didn't. As a consequence of whatever he did, he's got a red card. And that is really the only armament that's in the referee's locker. It it says very clearly, off you go. And the player or player manager refuses to go. I think the referee's got no other option. In many instances, you might just get the guy's colleagues, suggesting to him that he needs to leave the field of play. Now, whatever's taking place in that game and how unhappy you are with the referee, you've got to adhere to the referee's sanction. So, expect a fine and a ban. Now, the whole argument is, and I've not seen the incident, are the bans that have been issued by the FA acting as the appropriate deterrent? Is this manager um, setting the right example? I can tell you that if that happened at the club that I'm involved with, it wouldn't last very long because there are a lot of sensible people around the game that will not want their club besmirched by this type of incident, which had gone national, which no doubt uh, will go international. So the player himself gains some degree of notoriety for all the wrong reasons. And the referee then might suddenly say to himself, Mike, do I really need this? Do I need my Saturday ruined? Now, I hope that's not the case. I hope the referee understands he's done his job. He's left with
0: no alternative. And I applaud what he's done. This show is about praising referees when they get things right and and well, I think we should do that from the Premier League this weekend because there have been uh, a couple of really praiseworthy moments, not least at St James's Park, Andre Mariner having to suspend uh, Sunday's game against Spurs uh, with uh, Newcastle United uh, hosting that one, and a medical emergency in the stands, the players alerting the referee to what was going on and the game stopped and medical treatment sought and, and, and found, an, and hopefully uh, a good outcome at the end of it as well. The, the report, as we record, that the person involved had uh, been taken to hospital and stabilised. Thankfully, the hospital is just around the corner from St. James's Park, yes. so I'm sure they're getting the best possible care at this point. But in terms of managing that situation, well, I guess you have to praise the players and, and Andre Mariner. I thought
1: the players were terrific. Uh, I thought also that Andre was alert. Uh, in fact, to be honest with you, I, th- I think he was really having a good game um, and I think he produced a good good performance, level-headed in a hothouse of an atmosphere and just did his, new, his, his normal laid-back officiating with accuracy. So, you yeah, know, great compliment that to the players who recognise there was a problem in the stands. Uh, that's not always easy to detect. I think then Andre quite rightly took the players away to the edge of the pitch. I'm thinking at that time, I wonder why. But then what you see is Eric Dyer move pretty smartly towards the tunnel area and out pops a guy with a defib and sprints across the pitch. I do know that at Newcastle, they do have a defibrillator in, in, I think, all the stands. But, okay, in this occasion... They might not have been able to find it or it wasn't readily available. So they got this one. And then Andre's left with a problem because how long does he wait? He was clearly getting concerned. He wanted the game to be uh, to continue. Everybody did. He's got the, he's got the pressure of the media uh, and the clock running in terms of the media, both verbal and, and pictorial. And what he then did was the sensible thing, and that is to say, right, okay, let's take you off into the warmth of a a dressing room. The reason being that you can easily lose body temperature and then you restart and the risk is you start getting injuries, tendon, Achilles and various other things because you're not stretched. So I think Andre handled it really well. I think that there's no doubts that the players responded brilliantly. And I think it demonstrates the Premier League are prepared and professional clubs are prepared. I think what's important is that you know clubs at grassroots level uh, make every effort. I know at senior level there's all sorts of schemes to de- to acquire defibrillators and probably get two or three people trained in in which to use them. I think more so now than in the past. Let's hope that that junior club that's out there at the weekend, and it's got five or six teams playing. Might suddenly say, "Hey, let us have a, a some sort of event that can actually get us towards purchasing a a defense.
0: Absolutely right, and uh, as I say, uh, our hopes and uh, and prayers for that individual, and hopefully they make a swift yeah. recovery and are back at St James's Park very soon. Indeed, more praise we should give actually to uh, Craig Pearson this weekend: Leicester City against Manchester United, a roller coaster of a game. But one incident in particular caught your eye, Keith. A, a challenge with the scoreline at 2-2, straight from the kickoff. off wan uh, with a challenge on the touchline. But Craig Pawson plays the advantage and seconds later, Leicester City go 3-2 in front. Uh, that particular decision actually highlighting something maybe we're seeing a little bit more in the Premier League this, this season. A bit more advantage being given. Yeah, overall. I think... I think... I think there's some sensible refereeing. I think the lighter touch is still there, which is good.
1: And I think with that, you know, when you when you play a high level of advantages in the game, players concentrate on the game. They don't have those periods of reflection or who can I blame uh, on incidents that have taken place uh, or blame the referee. So I think Craig is, is, is a fitter referee this year. Uh His movement is much more positive and dynamic. It was a foul... It was a reckless challenge, but he waited and the outcome was a goal scored by Vardy. I mean, I think it was just a terrific piece of refereeing. You know, when you're confident, not overconfident, because you can die when, in terms of uh, being overconfident, the game will bite you. But I think when you're confident, not arrogant, uh, these types of things, you know, a referee in form feels good and gets, gets an outcome he used to know the advantage could have gone and the ball had run out of the touchline but on this occasion a goal was scored and I think uh, Craig Borson had a terrific match
0: When it comes to the sort of criteria a referee might use to decide whether an advantage should be played or not what, what is going through the mind in what is essentially a split second decision as to whether the game should stop or it should be allowed to flow, Keith? How do you ultimately make your mind up as a referee?
1: I think what you do initially is you build up a field for the players are they responding to your referee is the respect player to opponent what is the temperature of the, ground, the game how, how are the players behaving what is the flow of the game and when you when you apply early on that first advantage how was that accepted by the player who has been offended against, and the player who's committed the the foul. I think it's important as young referees that what you do is when you apply an advantage, you make certain that you talk to the player that's offended to make certain that he's aware that you've seen it. Often the shout of advantage, loud and exaggerated, helps in that scenario. A quiet word and then probably a balanced word with the player who's been offended. Say, look, I did see it. I did apply advantage. You get a feeling from the player at what level his temperature is. Does he feel that that offence, because he's he's got the pain from it. I haven't. So it's about getting that feed of information in to make your judgments. And whether in fact, because it's a, it's a tight act, it can suddenly too much advantage can lead to a loss of control. A player taking advantage, thinking I'm going to get away with something. So I think that is one aspect. And then it's where do you apply an advantage? I often, when I'm coaching referees, talk about a traffic light system for those younger referees that are learning the game and break the pitch into thirds. And in that first third, on the defending third, that's almost a red traffic light signal that says, look, if you're going to play advantage, they're rare, they don't often uh, materialise. Then when you move to middle third, midfield, either side of the halfway line, it's orange. Because in that situation, there's a chance for a long breakaway. So look, be more aware. And then the end third near the opponent's goal is green. So... Be prepared to play Now, what you've got, again, is the balance of, you don't take individual clubs and individual managers into, a, into account, but if you look at the statistics, lots of goals are scored in the Premier League from set-piece play. As a result of that, a lot of the managers would want to condition you into giving free kicks just outside the penalty area, rather than applying an advantage. But the, you know, in my day, once you shouted play on or advantage, that was it. But the modern game and modern laws allow you to go back. If you're a situation where you've shouted play on, there's a breakaway and it doesn't materialise, you can go back and give a free kick. Now, they talk about three seconds. But, Mike, if you're a referee that's earned respect, if you stretch that to five, nobody's going to argue because you're the sole timekeeper
0: and when you're dealing with maybe a manager who like you say would want the free kick more often than the advantage do you want then to give those free kicks because ultimately the team that is fouled should get the most advantage from that situation so if they're feeling actually i want the free kick do you then as a referee think well okay well i need to these more often rather than letting the game flow well, how much of that do you control well I mean clearly you control it all but how much should you allow that to influence the way that you let a game run
1: I think that what happens as a referee over a, over a period of time uh, is that you gain your own reputation you gain your reputation as good bad or indifferent uh, and, and that reputation sticks they tend to stick so if you've done something wrong with a club at some point in your career, that will stick. They'll always you, you go back to that ground, they remember that. And so I think that what's important is it's it's about you being consistent within the game, and ideally then game to game, but there's no two games alike. And so this is a this is a, a skill factor. I I used to prefer high tempo games, so throughout my interference level was great. It it was great because it was about I want to throw in from there. I'm look, I wasn't to a yard. I knew that at two yards I'm gonna shout. So I think it's I think it's a, a little bit like if the momentum's going the high tempo play it. and if the players are responding, brilliant. If they're not you then have to squeeze. And so this gets back to some degree of this um, process of ten-minute refereeing. I didn't use ten-minute refereeing, but I, I know several referees did and do. Um, and that is okay. You open the first ten minutes, and you tightly control. You don't give an advantage. You know that's that's the principle of it. And then you begin to release. And if that game suddenly you know, in a 30 to 40-minute time begins to tighten up again, then you can come in and go, that's a free kick, that's a free kick. But I used to naturally want to apply advantage. And often, if I read my assessor's reports, it's the one criticism I used to have. They used to say to me, "Uh, Mr Hackett, you look like a windmill. And that was <laughs> that. Would that you know that was me just uh, going completely against the FA instructions on signalling an advantage because it was out wide. It was it was pretty loud shout uh, because I wanted everybody to understand the spectators as well that I had seen a foul and I was
0: applying it and I played it. I took high risks having played an advantage. Uh, just to go back to this. Wan bissaka challenge as an example. So, Wan Bisaka makes a challenge. He later gets booked after the goal is scored. Had he gone on and got back up to his feet and after the advantage had been played, but a free kick not given, made another sliding challenge that was worthy of a yellow card, do you then, as a referee, have to give two bookings or can you get away with one?
1: Well, you can, you could get away with one, but for me, he's committed two, two yellow card defences with some distance between them. So as a consequence, that distance says there's a foul there and there's a foul there, you're getting a yellow card. Uh, or you might give two. My view is that when you're applying advantage, you are judging that player. You are judging whether, in fact, he's got the discipline. And invariably, you know, Mike... Uh, although I'm critical at times of players in the Premier League, they have got a great deal of discipline. They're not, they're not like they were in the 70s, 80s when I used to referee. <laughs> you know, some wanted to fight and argue with themselves. Uh, and the, the thing you learned is to get out of the air. And, and, you know, I often say, look, it makes two to make an argument. And sometimes stopping the game and issuing an, what I say is a nonsense warning an unnecessary chat with a player can draw that player in. So what then becomes an argument? A yellow card. Whereas I think it takes two to make an argument. So are you going to be the facilitator of creating that argument? Whereas an advantage can get you out of jail. It can also get you out of jail on those tight calls. Is it a foul? Is it not a foul? Play on. You know, uh, but those, those are... Matters about officiating, and it's about style. And, but the one thing I guard against is that grassroots referees, one, two years into their career as a referee, have really got to take care. We talked uh, a few weeks ago, and I, I was impressed, Mike, because you came and said you'd seen a referee. We praised him on this show that had talked to players, had told them that was a foul, why it was a foul, why it was a throw-in, all those sorts of things. And, you know, when you look at these the youngsters now that are playing through the game, various age groups, it's great when you've got a referee that's got that level of experience to be able to referee and do it, in a sense, do a bit of coaching.
0: Mm.
1: But you're not coaching for the team to win. You're actually informing them and making them aware of some of the laws that they're not, they're not aware of. You know, I often, I'm critical that clubs, this happens at pro level, but I wonder how often it happens at grassroots level that clubs bring in a referee, sit round a table or sit in in a fairly relaxed area and talk to players about the laws of the game.
0: One part of the law we may have to look at, um, I, I, I used to start this podcast by asking you about laws that we could change. Maybe this is one I can persuade you with, Keith. Uh, Watford Liverpool on Saturday lunchtime uh, saw Mo Salah in an offside position as the ball is played to him but the ball never reached him because Craig Cathcart makes a sliding challenge and inadvertently plays the ball to Firmino, who scores. So the contention here is Cathcart doesn't challenge for the ball if Salah isn't behind him but the law doesn't deem that Salah is interfering with an opponent by standing in that position. So in this case... Is this where the law needs work? Because for me, looking at that, Salah looks to be, to use the inverted commas, interfering with play, but the law says he isn't.
1: Yeah. I, You know, Mike, I've got great sympathy for this, and I, I do think it's an aspect of law that worries me. We have to start off, first of all, by saying that a player in an offside position has not committed an offence. So a player can stand in an offside position what we have to do is determine whether he's active and he has interfered with his opponent and one of the things that they're not prepared to do is think about the psychological impact of the player being in an offside position in relation to a defender who's trying to defend the ball now in my day it was i think offside was applied uh, in a in a more simple format it did result in more offside awards. I have to say that very clearly. And we've refined it to a point that makes it extremely difficult for a grassroots referee to apply. And even, I was watching a game yesterday, and there's a there's a player standing, a Penniston church player, standing offside in the middle. And the ball goes to a left winger who's onside. And was flagged off. I'm not being critical of the assistant here, but if you're, you know, I'm I'm sat opposite and I'm thinking there's there's enormous amount of pressure because the assistant's looking down the line and he doesn't necessarily know which direction the ball's going. So what he's done is he's made an, a judgment that the ball's going to the player in an offside position when in fact it's going the other way. Now it's a finite judgment, but in this one. Starla was offside, and I've no doubt the impact of that defender. That defender's job is to defend and try to win the ball, and that's what he did. Just like Anthony Taylor and Stuart Atwell, who's the VAR, in the the, the recent final game in Europe, and uh, Mbappé scoring, it was almost an identical scenario where Mbappé receives the ball and everybody's comes out justifying that it was the correct decision. And in law, as it's written, it was the correct decision. Did it look right? No. Did the one involving Salah look right? No. So I think they've got to go back to the drawing board and they've got to try and simplify this law. Now, Mm -hmm. that's not easy, uh, but I do think they've got to go back to basics and say, right, what are we trying to achieve here?
0: I mean, I'm just trying to in my head think. You know, how could you write that into law? Um, and I don't know whether the simplest way to do it would be to say a player is deemed to be interfering with play if, by standing in an offside position, they force a defender to play the ball when they otherwise wouldn't. But that in itself seems like a clumsy definition. I, like, you know, and just just saying that shows how difficult this is to kind well, of get this right because that's where it's that's where it stood.
1: For a number of years, when I first started refereeing in the 60s, 70s, the ball would come kicked, and players are offside, you blow straight away. He's offside. His position. Mm. So then they start refinements. The first refinement is if he's standing on the left wing and it's it's the right, you know, the, the player on the left wing is offside and it comes to the right wing, you're not going to give him offside. And then we used to penalize them for gaining an advantage. This was similar is gain an advantage. But then there was this complete law change, which said, right, okay, um, gaining an advantage can only be achieved if a player is in an offside position and the ball comes back, having a shot on goal, hits the crossbar, comes back, hits the goalkeeper, comes back. Then he's offside. He's gaining an advantage by being in an offside position. And then we further complicate it because we say, right, actively and they almost say we define that by having possession of the ball and that maybe is the answer that you've, you that you don't penalize a player unless he receives the ball now this psychological aspect is a little bit like the argument that the goalkeeper has he's not in the path of the ball Therefore, the player in an offside position is not interfering, but he's in the sight line of the goalkeeper. And the goalkeeper may react differently because he can see a forward coming in and he's making a judgment. I don't envy the lawmakers, but I do think they've got sufficient money and funds and enough people around the world to actually sit around the table and say, right, let's try and resolve this.
0: Set to your task, clever people. We'll, we'll I mean, see, what, I mean, what, see what, what IFAB comes up with for next
1: season. Well, I think that the move uh, at the, at the grass, uh, sorry, at senior level of the game is that Arsene Wenger, is, in his technical role, he's very keen that offside decisions are made without the involvement of human beings. And therefore, that will require a law rewrite. And it has to have a similar system to that of uh, goal line technology, high-speed high cameras, uh, probably GPS tracking and any the other weird sort of systems that, that can apply in order for that to happen. But the hope is that, I mean, that, that Wenger's aim is to get that
0: introduced for the next World Cup. So w- watch this space. Well, look forward to seeing it. Let's look in the EFL this weekend. Uh, big derby game, Swansea-Cardiff with uh, Swansea coming out on top. But And this kind of gets lost because it happened in the third minute of the game and Swansea went on to win 3-0, so no-one really cares about it. But I think it's an interesting talking point anyway. Uh, Because Swansea feel they they should have had a penalty early in the game, Laird challenged by Nelson, inside the area, doesn't get the ball. A corner is given by James Lillington rather than a penalty kick. Swansea, you would feel, have a case for for a penalty here.
1: For me, it was a penalty kick. It was a trip. He didn't play the ball, he played the man. I thought it was a very clear, easy penalty kick decision. When you look at it and you have to review, James Leanington is slightly to the right-hand side of the penalty area and he's got two players that's covering that challenge. And he, he himself exaggerates that by actually trying to look around the corner to see what's happening. Opening three, three, third minute of the game, I think this. So you then you have to say to yourself that positioning and viewing angle is, is critical, and uh, you know I watched Stuart Atwell the referee a game this afternoon. Now he's probably one of the fittest referees on the on the two competitions, but this afternoon, despite the fact that he demonstrated he got a, this acceleration and speed of movement, was falling short of the penalty area by five, six, seven yards. And I'm thinking, why are you doing that? You don't have to conserve your energy because you're a fit referee. You're a professional referee. You're fit. Go for broke in these situations. Lennington was caught absolutely cold in terms of not having the agility to move left. And we say to referees, you don't necessarily have to track the diagonal or move in a certain area. It's about the agility to move to get the right viewing angle. You don't bend the body tower, look, because that will develop in accuracy. Um, so I, I, he didn't see it. He didn't see the foul. He wasn't in a good position. It, in proximity to play, he was there, but viewing angle, flawed. And now I think to myself, well, the assistant referee's got the... the we were shown a, a, an angle from where the assistant was standing almost. And, and I'm thinking, why didn't the assistant referee come in? I mean, I know that James Linnington is a, you know, he's a long-standing referee from the Isle of Wight. Um, he gets some, you know, he's consistently getting the big games. He must be in a position where he should be SG two and the opportunity to become a professional referee. But I hope that's not passed for him. But on this occasion, it was a critical decision early in the game. Now it's not impacted on the result, but if I was assessing. And making a comment that would certainly feature. Be prepared, and make certain you move and get in the right position. And talk me through, both of you, how you came to that decision that it wasn't a penalty kick.
0: And and maybe dispel a myth for me, Keith, because it feels to me only human that you might be a bit more hesitant to make a big, big call in the third minute of a, a South Wales derby than you might be, uh, you know, in the 15th minute or the 25th minute or, you know, when the game's had a bit of, t- of a chance to develop. Is that me just making it up or is there is there something to that?
1: No, I I think that, um, I mean, in my day, when I ran the line to referees in the early 70s, you often saw the referee having a, a cigarette and a, and a small whiskey and, going out to referee a football match. <laughs> um, you know, now referees train, the pro- professionals, many of them, they, uh, they get a warm-up pr- procedure. I think that, I think this is just about awareness, concentration, knowing that you, you know, it's competitive out there, you want to do well. This is a cup final for you, whatever game it is. And I always go back to Jack Taylor, you know, alongside Howard Webb, probably the two best referees we've produced. i bring Clattenberg into that. Jack Taylor, all the ceremony of the opening sort of brass band and everything that was playing pre the World Cup final, stands there in the middle, the television is saying go, everybody's saying go, we're all waiting. And he, he suddenly says, I want the corner flags. Because they'd missed them. And very shortly after, when the game started, in the first minute, I think, he awarded a penalty kick, correct? So it's about being up for it and ready for it, and it can happen at any time, and it doesn't matter whether it happens in the first minute or whatever. Another example that I always uh, talk about is that often people think that, you know, colleague Mark Alzu, who's been on the show, Mark is... Was a soft referee he was a great communicator mark and usually fit and some said well he was on always on the player's side and and maybe that was seen because he communicated well and they responded to him well you know his time as a goalkeeper i think was how he got all the chats he came to hillsborough and in 13 seconds carrying pressman had committed the denial of an obvious scoring opportunity, and Mark produced a red card. I was his boss. I put my blue and white shirt on, unhappy with what he said, <laughs> that he'd sent Kevin Pressman off. But I knew as the boss of the PGMOL, he'd applied the law correctly. So time should not influence.
0: You've got to be ready for anything, including that this last incident, I guess uh, we should talk about, Keith. Uh, from the Glentoran goalkeeper, Aaron McCary. Uh showed a red card for lashing out at his own teammate this weekend, Bobby Burns, uh, on the end of this particular incident, uh, after they conceded an equaliser in the Irish Premiership game, against Coleraine. Have you ever had to deal with teammates lashing out at each other, Keith?
1: I, they've obviously had differences of opinion. And one of the things that you've always got to be careful of, and this is, this is, if you like, passing knowledge on to younger referees, and that is at the point of which a substitute is made, there's always a risk that the game changes. You know, you need to be aware of the sub, you know, as he is the manager getting frustrated and he's sent the sub on to do, one or two at it jobs on the opponents. You've just got to be mindful of that. And in this case, how are players behaving and responding to each other and their opponents? And sometimes it can border and that's when the referee can get involved and just run alongside. And if it's two players and not the captain, which you've got to identify and understand who the captain is, then find the captain out and say, hey, you're five and six or seven and eight or whatever are losing it a bit. Can you just have a quiet word with them? But if you get what you saw at the weekend, the referee was alert. I praises the fact that he was alert and dismissed uh, the goalkeeper for uh, having a go at his his, uh, his colleague. Um, amazing. I wonder what the I wonder what the, the sort of match said <laughs> in the dressing room after the game. And I wondered what what went off in the dressing room. Hopefully they, they shook hands and uh, got over the issue, but the goalkeeper's going to spend a bit of time uh, not in, in between the posts.
0: Absolutely bizarre. Uh, reminded me of the... Uh, Lee Is it Lee Bowyer and Kieran Dyer of, of Newcastle fighting each other about 20 years ago? Yes, now, it, wasn't it was. Yeah,
1: yeah, it does happen. It's rare, fortunately. But I think sometimes... It, it, you know, the goalkeeper was frustrated in this occasion. They were winning and all of a sudden a goal's conceded and he's looking around to blame. I mean, that's the the way with goalkeepers, isn't it? I mean, if we take uh, Schmeich, uh, was it Casper Schmeich? No, it was uh, Jordan Pickford in the Everton game. He goes high for the ball. Antonio wins the ball fairly. It uh, it hits the goalkeeper's glove on the way out for a corner kick and the referee's given it all. But Pickford expresses his uh, disappointment, and um, it it's the way with goalkeepers at times. Who can we blame? And he thought he should have had a foul. It wasn't a foul, and
0: I think it was even disputing the corner kick. The referee on this occasion got both right. Well, I wait and see with bated breath what we'll have to discuss next week. The, the one thing I do know, Keith is that we'll always be something, because every week there's been something thrown at us we haven't seen before. If you've got a question for Keith, you want to post something to him, perhaps in a game uh, that you've seen, hello at uk is the email address where you can get in touch, or on Twitter as well. Uh, if you stay with us for the whole show, as I say this every week, thanks so much for being with us. And uh, if you want to leave a rating or a review, it really does help uh, if you do that wherever you get your podcasts to get other people to discover the show as well but if you're new to this show by the way there's new episodes of have seen them given every monday for now though thank you so much for your company thanks keith thank you mike we'll see you next time